0: When I was 13 years old, I kicked my brother in the face so hard that I made him bleed. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. (laughs) Incidentally, it's also that brother's birthday, so double whammy today. Anyway, Matt and I were arguing about uh, who knows what. He punched me, I punched him, he chased me up the stairs, he tripped. (laughs) (laughs) He tripped and landed on the landing, and that's when I made my move. From a step or two above him, I just kicked him right in the face. I know. (laughs) I was a real treat, you guys. (laughs) Naturally, I laughed, hysterically. But the laughter was incredibly short-lived because as soon as I saw the look in his eye, the one where I realized he was going to kill me, My laughter turned to fear, and I ran the rest of the way up the stairs yelling, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, (laughs) while I barricaded myself into my bedroom where I stayed until he went off to college. (laughs) I said that I was sorry, but we all know that I wasn't really sorry at all. I just said that I was sorry because I didn't want him to retaliate. We live in a world where we don't say sorry for the things that we should apologize for. We often say sorry for things that we didn't even really do wrong particularly here. We're Midwesterners, so we say sorry all the time. I came across this article, I think it was just last week or the week before, and this is what it was called. Oh, sorry, only Midwesterners can appreciate these 10 things about the Midwest. And the list contained things like we wear shorts in 50-degree weather, that we have special hot dogs that you have to make sure are made up a certain way. And then my favorite one, They said, I realize that everybody in the Midwest collectively uses this fake word or noise, ope, in about every situation. For instance, ope, can I just sneak past you real quick when you're trying to slide in front of somebody? Or when you almost bumped into somebody, but you didn't actually bump into them, and you go, ope, sorry. I don't like to fit stereotypes, but I say that all of the time. Ope, sorry. Now, usually for stuff I didn't even really do wrong. When you're in a concert and you're trying to get by people... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I don't have anything to be sorry for, but we say it anyway. The only people, I think, who say sorry more excessively than Midwesterners are Canadians. (laughs) Right? I lived in Canada for four years, and stereotypically speaking, they really do say sorry a lot. In fact, Canadians say sorry so much. This is a true story. In 2009 the province of Ontario passed a law that they called the Apology Act. And the Apology Act was created to distinguish in a court of law that while saying sorry was an expression of sympathy or regret, it was not an admission of liability or fault. Yeah. They totally out-sorry us sorry just kind of rolls right off the tongue whether you've done something wrong or not, right? Guess what doesn't roll off the tongue? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is a tough one. If you have been here the past couple of weeks, you might be wondering if we switched our sermon series. We didn't. We are in week three of a series called Fully You where we are talking about what it means to know and live into our true identity, And so two weeks ago, we talked about the power that shame has over us. We said that the world as it was created to be broke, because sin entered in when Adam and Eve first chose something other than God. And we said that shame was the very first thing that entered the world as a result of sin. Shame can destroy our sense of identity And then last week, we celebrated Confirmation Sunday with Gabriella, and we talked about the importance that community has in helping us to understand our identity in Christ. So for today, are we talking about identity or are we talking about forgiveness? The answer is yes. In a way similar to shame, forgiveness, or rather unforgiveness, has a way of shaping and changing and damaging our sense of identity. So to help us frame this conversation a little bit, we're going to be using a really important parable from the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to the Bible and you're not quite sure what a parable is, it's basically a story. Jesus spoke in parables often. They were simple stories that helped him to convey a particular moral or message. And so today's parable comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Just prior to this story, Jesus was doing some pretty important teaching. He talked about having faith like a child, He taught about the power of sin. He taught about how important we are to him. And then in our story for this morning, without any transition, Jesus' disciple Peter asks Jesus this question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And it was a fair question because at that time in Judaism, the teaching was that when someone had committed a transgression against you, you should forgive them up to three times. And then after the third time, all bets are off. You don't have to forgive them anymore. So maybe Peter was being overly generous with, by offering the number seven as he asked this question, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Up to seven times. Jesus says, Not just seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say seven times 70. So people have this tendency to get really hung up on the number that's offered here, but I don't think the number (laughs) matters. The point I believe that Jesus was trying to make wasn't about the number. The point was that Peter and his disciples and all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus are to forgive without keeping count. That is what Jesus was trying to get at here, I believe. And how do we know that that is what Jesus meant? Because he didn't stop with that sentence. He went on to tell a parable or a story. And so if you like to follow along, we're looking at Matthew chapter 18. And I read the first sentence of this part, so we're gonna be going to verse 23. Matthew 18, starting at verse 23. Or you can just listen along. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and wouldn't let him go. I'm sorry, canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of us unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So my translation changed all of the verbiage around how much was owed into bags of gold. Most of the translations that you may be reading use the word um, talent and denarius or denarii. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about that this morning because the first guy in most translations that says was owed owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, again, this exact number doesn't matter, and here's why. Because a talent wasn't even a form of currency. A talent was a measure of weight. And so in monetary terms, that talent would have been the weight of silver or gold. One talent was equal to roughly 15 years worth of wages for a typical worker, the guy in this parable owes 10,000 talents, which means, think about that. In, in a, over 100,000 lifetimes, he couldn't pay this guy back. The point is that there was literally no way in a million lifetimes for this man to pay back his debt to the king. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced being in debt. Statistics would say that most of you have, credit card debt or student loans or whatever it is, but debt can feel crushing, can't it? Debt feels crushing even when you think you have a chance, even when you're planning to actually pay it back, debt still feels crushing. And so imagine imagine the weight of knowing that in over 100,000 lifetimes you couldn't pay your debt back. That is the position that this man was in. That is what caused him to fall to his knees and beg the king to be patient with him until he could pay him back. Obviously, he couldn't. Who knows why he even bothered to ask, but he did. And the king took pity on him and forgave his debt. So we talked about how crushing debt can be, but how many of you have ever paid off debt? You send in that last car payment, when you send in that last student loan payment, The last credit card bill, and you realize that you are debt free, that is an incredible feeling, isn't it? Some of you are like, I don't know, maybe. I hope, wouldn't know. You're on top of the world when that happens. You're not walking around crushed by the weight of debt anymore. And so this guy goes skipping off, light as a feather free as a bird, grateful to have this incredible debt forgiven that he could never, ever, ever pay off otherwise. And then on his way home, he runs into a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. So a denarius is a small silver coin, and that was typically what a worker would make in one day's wage. Denarii is the plural form of denarius. And so this servant here owed his fellow servant 100 denarii, so he was about 100 days work in debt, okay? So this servant who had just forgiven this debt that he could never pay, what does he do in the face of this tiny debt that he is now owed? He chokes the man. And then when the second servant mimics the behavior of dropping to his knees and begging for some forgiveness from the first servant, the same exact exact language is used for these two servants who dropped to their knees and begged for forgiveness. The first man has the second man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. It's a terrible story. As readers, it feels incomprehensible that someone could experience that degree of forgiveness and then turn around and treat somebody in such a disgusting manner for a drastically smaller debt Ah, but that is precisely Jesus' point, isn't it? Because we do the same thing all of the time. It's a story that we read and think, yeah, but I would never do that. I would never be that uncaring, that unfair, that unforgiving towards someone else after I had experienced such life-altering forgiveness. But don't we? Don't we do that all the time? Remember the progression that we've been talking about over the past couple of months now? Humanity was created to walk in perfect relationship with God where we knew that God would provide everything we need and humanity wanted for nothing and then it all changed when sin entered in. It changed our relationship with God. That relationship broke because our sin separated us from God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God creating these covenants with his people. God throughout the Old Testament is trying to recreate a people for himself, a people devoted to him. When we got to Good Friday then, we talked about the reality that God had been planning a way to bring us back to himself. Because if sin and death led to us being separated from God, then God would create a way to conquer both sin and death, and he did. While we were still sinners, while we were the ones who deserved death, Christ died for us that we would never again be separated from God. Jesus took all of our sin upon himself and in turn, we were forgiven. Christ died a death that he did not deserve so that we could live a life that we do not deserve. There is nothing, nothing that you could have done or will do in this life that is outside the grip of God's grace. There is no part of your story that is too broken or damaged, to be healed by the forgiveness of God. It is a forgiveness that we cannot earn. It is a forgiveness that frees us, a forgiveness that saves us, a forgiveness that changes absolutely everything. It was a debt that we could not pay, and now we get to live as fully forgiven people. And so wouldn't you think that in the face of such lavish forgiveness, that we would live our lives with such a lightness of heart that we would be so quick to forgive everybody else. But are we? Maybe for small things. But generally, most of us struggle with forgiveness on some, some level. So many of us are walking through this life carrying around hurts and grudges and unforgiveness And it not only eats us alive, it alters our understanding of who we are, our identity. A while back, there was a conference on science and theology where one of the conversations turned to the topic of forgiveness and one of the speakers, who was a psychology professor named Dr. Everett Worthington, in his speech, he talked about the fact that there is neurological evidence that we are hardwired for revenge. And so he said that experimental subjects that were about to engage in revenge have the pleasure pathways of their brain activated. I'm guessing that some of us are a little more wired for revenge than others, but typically speaking, we like to see a person get what's coming to them. We seek revenge under the guise of justice. When it's someone we don't know, someone in the public eye, we love to see our opinion of justice get served. When the hurt hits a little closer to home and we have to deal with what has been done to us, well, then we want that person or people to hurt the same way that we did, right? Even if we know it's not true, even if we know it's not true, we feel like forgiving someone else okays what they have done. And there's no way we're gonna do that, right? And so we hold on to it. My friend who was a therapist referred to this in terms of an IOU, that when someone hurts us, we write out these IOUs, these things that we are owed because of what they did. And we fold them up and we carry them around in our pocket and we show them to other people and we say, look what he did to me. Listen to what she said to me. And we get other people on board with our hurt and our anger and we further justify our unwillingness to forgive. And then we fold up that IOU and we carry it around until the next person comes along. And it's easy to justify, right? Some of you have been through some genuinely awful and traumatic hurts. Your anger and your hurt is very real and very justified. And so it's not difficult to find somebody who would beat the drum of unforgiveness with you because that person or people clearly doesn't deserve to be forgiven for what they did, right? I get that, I do. I lived a lot of my life like that. And then I came across somebody else who gets it too. Her name is Sarah Montana, and she did a TED Talk about a year ago or so. I'd encourage you to watch the whole thing if you get the chance. I edit it down for the sake of our time together, but I'm gonna share some of what she had to say in her TED Talk. She says, in the summer of 2016, I did the sensible thing. I quit my cushy job at a hedge fund to write a play about my family's murder. I was seeking closure to a relationship with someone that I barely knew, the kid who killed my mother and brother. He was my friend's younger brother, a kid from our neighborhood. He came over a handful of times to raid our family snack cabinet. My mom actually used to wave at him from the van and say to us, he's going through a hard time. I just want to make sure he knows that I see him. He broke into our house a couple of days before Christmas looking for some stuff to sell for cash. When he came across my brother Jim asleep on the couch, he panicked and shot him and fled the scene. Then he realized he forgot his coat. By the time he came back, my mom had found Jim. Because he knew she recognized him, he shot and killed her too. Sarah said that years later, the steel tether of trauma that he hooked into my side when he killed them was still there. And I had been lurching against its pull and dragging him through the mud for the past seven years, whether I knew it or not. And it was with a little horror that I realized that he may have killed them, but I chose to keep us connected. So I cannot imagine the trauma of what she went through, but I really appreciate the image that she uses here of this steel tether of trauma that he hooked into my side, That thing, whatever it is, that broke your heart or ruined your marriage or damaged your body or destroyed your dream, when we choose not to forgive, that steel hook stays hooked in our sides and we carry it and we drag it and we pull it through the mud and the mess of this life, choosing to stay connected to the thing or the person that hurt us in the first place. That is what happens when we don't forgive. The professor of psychology, the same one who said that we are hardwired for revenge, well, he also provided evidence that proves that holding on to anger and resentment is disastrous for a person's mental, spiritual, emotional, and physical health. The University of Pennsylvania published a 72-page paper on the connection between forgiveness and our health, well-being, and longevity, and how the subsequent lack of those things Uh, the subsequent lack of those things in cases of unforgiveness. Dr. Karen Swartz from John Hopkins says that chronic anger puts you constantly into fight-or-flight mode, which results in numerous changes in your heart rate and your blood pressure and your immune response. These changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, diabetes, and many other conditions. Worthington says we pay terribly for every moment we choose not to forgive, and we do. It is so costly to every single aspect of our lives, our well-being, and our identity in Christ. It is why Sarah Montana went on to say, she says, so after waiting through all of these options, every option, I realized that the only way to get rid of this dude was to forgive him. She says that was a real bummer of a conclusion to come to because the truth was I thought I had already forgiven him, I told my friends that I forgave him. I told my family that I forgave him. I even said, I forgive you on national news. So why do it? Why forgive? Forgiveness is designed to set you free. When you say, I forgive you, what you're really saying, she says, is I know what you did. It's not okay. But I don't want to be held captive by this thing anymore. She says, our culture thinks that vengeance is freedom, but vengeance is a prison. Every time somebody thinks about my mom and brother, they think about the fact that they're not here, and they think about the kid who did this. That one act of violence actually bound the three of them together in people's minds for eternity. When we choose vengeance, we're actually signing a blood oath to chain our story to our enemies for the rest of time. Forgiveness is the only real path to freedom. And then she said this, and I think this is so profound. She said, this is why justice feels so cold for victims. It's justice's job to assess what is owed, and it's the criminal, justice's, the criminal justice system's job to assess what is owed to society, not to victims. It's up to us to get really clear individually on what we are owed she said, I couldn't, forgive Jim. I couldn't forgive him for killing my mom and Jim. I'm still here, so I had to assess my damages. The wedding that I had without the two of them, the way that my life was supposed to go that he broke, my inherent sense of safety and belonging, those are my damages. Most of us avoid forgiveness like the plague because we do not want to look at our wounds. It's easier to take all of that emotion and channel it into rage towards another person if you don't know what happened to you, you can't know what you are forgiving. And so she asked the question, what injustice's name am I owed? An apology? An explanation? A front row seat to his torture chamber? Forgiveness is right when waiting for what we, have, what we think we're owed comes at too high a cost. She says, and one day, losing myself in order to punish him And keep the two of them alive felt like too high a cost to bear. And it was there in the crossroads. I knew what I was owed. And I decided that choosing myself was more important than being right. And that is when I was ready to forgive. And this is the interesting piece about forgiveness. Montana says, sometimes I miss him. Not him, the monster that I created. Things were a lot harder, a lot harsher and black and white but they were a lot simpler when I had a villain to fight. But to get get free, I had to be very clear on exactly what contract I was shedding. Real forgiveness has to let go of all expectations. You can't expect a certain outcome. You can't expect them to reply. You can't even know exactly who you are going to be on the other side of it. And while I don't want to take away from her story or her amazing words, this is where I would tweak her words just a little bit. Because while we don't know what life will be like on the other side when we finally choose to forgive the person or people whose hook has been in our side for three years or 30 years, we do know that in forgiving, we will step into our God-given identity. When we don't forgive, we choose to not live as the forgiven and free sons and daughters of God that we were created and saved to be. Our ability and power to forgive is absolutely rooted in our identity in Christ. When we choose not to forgive, we have unknowingly given ourselves a new identity and a new job title, debt collector. And it's a full-time job. Spending your life as a debt collector is a 24-7, 365 career with no vacation time. But debt collecting was never supposed to be our identity because we have no reason to spend our life as debt collectors when we are abundantly wealthy in Jesus Christ. We have everything that we need as sons and daughters of God and our ability to forgive comes not from our power but in response to the lavish generosity of Christ forgiving us. Forgiveness does not mean that we condone what was said or done. Forgiveness does not mean staying or going back to a situation or relationship that is harmful or abusive. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, said that God's forgiveness of me calls me to keep stepping over all of my arguments that say, for unforg- say forgiveness is unwise, unhealthy, and impractical. It challenges me to step over all of my needs for gratitude and compliments. Finally, it demands of me that I step over the wounded part of my heart that feels hurt and wrong and that wants to stay in control and put a few conditions between me and the one whom I am asked to forgive. In other words, forgiveness allows justice to belong to the Lord. And it creates a way for us to unhook the steel tether that has been brutally attached to our side, to unhook the steel tether that contains the person's face and all of the anger and all of the hurt that comes with it that we have been staring into, that we have been carrying around day after day and year after year. Forgiveness allows us to unhook ourselves from the power of that person, that the power that they have had over us and to return power to the only one who can actually free us. And I know that some of you have verbally said that you forgive, but your heart remains angry and resentful. And you still want to tell all of the stories about how you have been wronged and about how you are right. You're still waiting for all of the apologies and the restitution. You still want the satisfaction of everybody else affirming that you are right. And so I wonder this morning if I can both gently and firmly encourage us to unhook the tether. You are not okaying what happened. You are freeing yourself from the poison that you drank expecting them to die. Do we forgive because they deserve forgiveness? No, we forgive because we didn't deserve forgiveness either. When we have experienced the unending forgiveness of God, it will impact every relationship in our lives. When you experience forgiveness, you will produce forgiveness. There's this famous quote from Gandhi that says, The weak can never forgive, that forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. I totally disagree. Forgiveness is not an attribute of the strong. Forgiveness is an attribute of the forgiven. Christ's side was pierced for our transgressions, that our sides would never have to be tethered to somebody else. So unhook the tether that binds you into unforgiveness and step into the abundant freedom of Christ's forgiveness because that is where you will find your true identity. Let's pray. God, this is hard. This is a hard part of being a follower of yours. And yet we remember this morning that it is not by or through our power that you are calling us to forgive. It is through yours. And the moment that we said yes to following you, the moment that we realized, Lord, that you forgave all of our sins, that we would be able to live freely in that moment we received all of your power to live the life that you have called us to live. God, I know, I know that there are so many people in this room who are walking around with the steel tether hooked into their side from a family member or a friend or maybe somebody they don't even know, Lord, who caused hurt and caused damage and caused anger. And it's so easy to hold on to, God, because life is so much easier when we have a villain to fight or so we think. But God, I pray that you would remind us this morning that you freed us so that we could be free. You didn't free us so that we could stay tethered. And so this morning, help us to have the courage, Lord, to unhook the tether that's in our side and to live as the free sons and daughters that you have created us to be. We pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank yeah.